Glad to see you this morning. Uh, we're going to continue in just a minute the series called Catalyst. We're looking at uh, worship and prayer and God's word as the catalyst for God's kingdom moving forward. Before we do that, I want to mention something to you. I've talked um, about these 2020 initiatives we're doing. I want to give you uh, another opportunity to come hear more about what we're doing. Um, on uh, March the 8th, which is next Sunday at 6 o'clock, we're going to gather back here to go a little bit more in depth with um, these different initiatives, the Teenage Boys Home, the uh, Community Counseling Center, Life Skills Center, Hygiene, all these different things that we're looking at launching in the next um, year to 18 months. Um, want you to come out and hear more about them. If you maybe you've heard a little bit and you're kind of interested, uh, but you want to know more, this is the time to come out. You may be able to find more of, of what uh, is in your heart to do and be a part of. And, and uh, as I said last week, we're also going to begin to have some meetings, some smaller meetings uh, with people who have expressed interest in these things to begin to move these things forward. So I really would encourage you that we as a church come back on March the 8th at 6 o'clock p.m., um, and we're going to go through these things in more detail. You'll have a chance to ask questions about them, and, and uh, if there's some things you're not sure about, ask questions and, and be given more information. And so um, I would encourage you, come back to that. This is something that's very big for us as a church, and I really want to encourage you uh, to be a part of it. Um, today, as we jump back into this series called Catalyst, we've been looking at worship the last few weeks. Um, today, we're going to shift a little bit and we're going to begin to look more at prayer. Um, and specifically, I mean, we could spend, you know, who knows how many weeks and weeks and weeks on prayer. But in the next four weeks, what we want to really be looking at is how prayer is a catalyst um, for the kingdom to go forward and specifically um, in the area of spiritual warfare. Um, a lot of times we hear spiritual warfare and we think like, ooh, right? Um, but, but we wanna kind of make this practical. Um, really, how does this happen? What does this look like for us? How do we pray? How, do we, um, how is God's word involved in prayer so that we see the kingdom of God go forward? And so today uh, we're gonna do that. Um, we're gonna be in Ephesians chapter six today. And uh, mostly I'm gonna jump around a little bit uh, to some other verses, but, but generally we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter six um, and really looking at this. How do we pray um, and see the gospel and the kingdom of God go forward and take ground? And, and so uh, with that in mind, I want to pray and then we'll jump into the message. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your power. We thank you for grace. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for times of worship. God, when we can come in and worship through song together. And God, we, we know that you're here amongst us. God, we thank you that no matter where we go, you're there, that you're with us, Lord. And God, right now, I pray that we would be even more aware of your presence, more aware of your voice to speak to our hearts. We would hear what it is that the Spirit is saying to us today through your word. Lord, we need you. We need you. We, we don't need just another service. We don't need just another time, Lord, another month. We need you. And God, I pray that you'll speak right now to our hearts through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. Well, how many of you have a tendency, and this is something that I'm pretty good at, um, of overcomplicating simple things? Anybody else do that sometimes? You overcomplicate simple things? Um, I'm good at that kind of thing. Um, I can uh, start uh, a project or something that should be very simple, just get it, get it done, be finished, and by the time I'm done, it's become some elaborate thing um, that that it shouldn't have been. Um, Sometimes I know um, with my boys in sports and things, um, we can get into like hitting and stuff like that. Easy to overcomplicate simple things and, and get too far into details and that kind of stuff. Um, I remember when I was young, um, we went to uh, uh, went skiing. I was probably 10, I guess 10, 12 years old. We went skiing. We went to this really fancy restaurant. I think I've mentioned this in the past, but we went to this really fancy restaurant. Didn't know it was fancy when we walked in, but found out it was fancy once we got in. I'd never been in a restaurant like this. And so they had like 14 knives and spoons and forks laid out. And, and, and I remember trying to be like, I don't even know what to do right now. Um, you know, how do I use this stuff? And so to me, it was really overcomplicating a simple act of eating food, right? I'm just like, I just need one fork. That's probably if we got some soup, a spoon's good. Don't have to have it. I can just drink it out of the bowl. Either way, it's fine. Goal is to get it in the belly, not to use all 14 of these different things. And so realizing that, and so it's easy to overcomplicate things sometimes. I believe the same thing about prayer, that, that many times we have overcomplicated prayer. We made prayer something that seems really difficult, that seems really hard. We, 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 we hear people pray and, and sometimes we're like, oh my gosh, they pray so good. They pray so good, did you hear how they prayed? And then we get intimidated and we're like, I don't know that I can pray like that. One of the greatest fears, I think maybe ahead of dying for most people is to pray out loud, (laughs) right? How many of you have been in the circle before where you're holding hands and they're like, if you don't wanna pray, just squeeze the hand of the person next to you. How many of you done that? And then you're always like, "Eh," you're like squeezing, breaking knuckles and stuff like that because we've made it like this hard thing to do when, when God really didn't make it to be hard, like right? he wants us to come to him and talk to him and listen to him and all these things. I mean, Jesus, and even in the Lord's prayer, was it a difficult prayer? No, it was a few lines. He's like, just pray like this. Here's a model prayer for you. Our father is in heaven, you know, that prayer. And so he made it really simple. He's like, look, you don't have to go on babbling like the pagans do. They say all these prayers to be seen. He's like, go get by yourself with God and just begin to lift your voice and lift your heart to him. And he, he wanted it to be really simple, but so many times we overcomplicate it. And, and so I want to make some general statements about prayer as we get into this that, that I hope can kind of help us relax when it comes to prayer, that, that can help us engage in it more because we don't see it as this really hard thing where we have to use a bunch of these and thous and thines and it's just communicating our heart Um, listening to God. And and today we're going to talk about praying God's word in a way that it begins to affect the spiritual realm around us. And so uh, I want us to look at this real quick, just some general thoughts about prayer. The first one is this. I want to encourage you that in prayer, it's much more important to be sincere than it is to be impressive. Okay. It's much more important to be sincere than it is to be impressive. Sometimes we think if I don't come to God and I don't pray with these impressive words, then man, you know, it's not gonna be a good prayer. And here's the thing I would ask you. 
do you really think you can impress God? We went skiing. I saw, I saw uh, the, the Rocky Mountains um, and, and I'm seeing this and it's one of the, the things that I've, I've done, the few things I've done that literally, um, when, I, when I saw it, it literally brought me to worship. I mean, I see this mountain in this vast valley lay out in front of me and I'm on skis and I'm like, I literally just wanted to raise my hands and close my eyes, but I'm like, that's probably not a good idea going down a mountain, right? But it's just incredible. And I look at that and I'm like, am I gonna really do something and say something that's gonna be that impressive to God? God's much more concerned with my heart and my sincerity in prayer than he is with me saying impressive sounding words. Another thing I would encourage you with in prayer is it's more about the expression of your heart over just these nice sounding words. Sometimes we feel like, oh gosh, I, I don't know if I can tell God that. I don't know if I can express that to God. And yet God already knows. God longs for us to come and to express our heart to him. I would tell you this, that in our prayers, it should be more about a longing for God than some kind of mechanical lip service that we give to him. A longing from our heart, God, I wanna engage in this relationship with you. And that's another thing about prayer that I want you to see is that prayer is an incredible privilege that we have as Christians. Prayer is how we engage our relationship with God. It's, it's, it's entering into a, a way we enter into God's presence, a way that we, we engage in our relationship with him, a way that, that, that even without words, we can communicate with God so that we are praying without ceasing as we're mindful of him. And throughout our day, our hearts are being lifted to him. I thought about Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, where um, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has in every way been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. And he tells us that because of that, we can now come boldly before the throne of grace to receive mercy in our time of need. And we have this incredible privilege that even though we in and of ourselves are sinful because of our faith in Christ, we have been made righteous so now we can come into God's presence to receive mercy in our time of need to encounter his presence again and again. We can live aware of his presence. Prayer is also this. It's, one, it's an incredible privilege, but two, it's a declaration of our limitations. It's a declaration of our limitations. It is basically us saying we are not God. I am not God I am a limited person. I am dependent on you, God, to move in me and in my life. I am dependent on you to move, Lord. And it's recognizing, last week I talked about how so often we live outside of our limitations. Prayer is recognizing my limitations and then trusting the God of Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 to do exceedingly abundantly more than I could ever think or imagine. It's recognizing I'm a limited human being, but as I cry out and I depend on an unlimited God, he's able to do more than I could ever possibly fathom. 
In fact, in that verse, the context of that verse in Ephesians 3.20 that we oftentimes quote, the context is this, where Paul lays out this grand plan and purpose for the church. It's so grand, it is so incredible that it seems almost impossible, they're impossible that it could ever happen. And then he says, don't forget this that you serve a God who does exceedingly abundantly more than you could ever think or imagine. And he goes on to say, this is for his glory. And so we have to recognize that we are limited human beings and prayer is a cry of dependence on God. We need to understand this, that prayer is a great necessity for a Christian, for the body, for the church. Because we know this from scripture that we can do nothing of eternal significance apart from God. John 15, five tells us that we, we can do nothing apart from him. We can't produce fruit in our life, in our individual life. We can't produce fruit in the kingdom. Nothing of eternal significance happens apart from the power of God. Jesus even says over in Matthew chapter six, he tells us this. Let me get to it real quick. He tells us this in Matthew chapter six about our own um, ability. And, and here's the thing, he's talking about worry and anxiety. And he says this, he says, can any of you add one moment in verse 27 of Matthew six, can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? Um, other translations say, can, can any of you add one inch to your heights by worrying? And the answer is no. We give ourselves way too much credit when we live independent of God, when we come to God and realize that it's only through him that he's gonna do eternal things in our life, that it's him who makes a way for that. The last thing I wanna tell you, just a general statement about prayer, is that it's powerful and effective. James 5, 16 through 18 tells us this. He tells us in this, that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Right before that, he tells us, he says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful in its effect. And so he's saying, listen, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another. You know that when you confess your sins, that God is faithful to forgive those sins. We learned that in 1 John. And so we see him telling us, confess your sins that you may be healed. He says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful in its effect. How are we righteous through Christ and our faith in Christ? And listen to this. He says in verse 17, he says, Elijah was a human being as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again and the sky gave rain and the land produced its fruit. And so what we see that James is teaching, he said, listen, Elijah, he was just a man like you. Yet he called on this infinite God who is limitless. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. I'm almost ready to pray that prayer. Anybody else? I spend so much time praying for rain and now I feel guilty. I'm like, God, could you stop the rain? Yeah, because it's like, my goodness, we've had like two days of sunshine. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I looked at the weather this morning. It's supposed to rain again tomorrow, Tuesday and Wednesday. Maybe we should pray this. But when we look at this, we see the prayer of a righteous person, prayer of a righteous man, prayer of a righteous woman, prayer, 
a righteous person, righteous by faith in Christ, righteous through confessing of sin, righteous through pursuit of God, righteous by faith, that the power of prayer is great, it is significant. And here's the key to this, guys. We have to be able to hold this in some sort of tension with this fact that prayer is also a mystery. Prayer is also a mystery. That God is perfectly sovereign and yet our prayer changes things. How do we explain that? I don't think we do. I think we just know this, that God is higher than me. His ways are not my ways. I don't understand him completely. If I could completely understand him, then he wouldn't be much of a God. So I look at God's word and I know he is sovereign. I look at God's word. I know that prayer changes things. And so I pray. I pray in faith. I pray believing. So I pray. I want to shift gears a little bit from looking at these things, the privilege of prayer, declaring our limitations and dependence on God, the necessity of God moving and doing eternal things, the fact that it's powerful and effective. I want to move and shift gears now, looking at those things and bringing them into this aspect of somewhat of spiritual warfare to, to begin to see like we battle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this dark age. We battle uh, against a real enemy. And so I want to begin to talk about that out of Ephesians chapter six. Um, let's read the first part of this in Ephesians six ten. I just want to read uh, 10 through 12 to begin. And, and it says this, Paul says, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. And so when he says this, finally, um, one of the things that I want you to see is, is it's not really that he's saying it's a final thought. What he's saying basically is everything I've told you up until this point, he's saying this is where it kind of all comes together. This is where all of the stuff I've told you from verse or chapter one now through um, five other chapters, this is where it's all gonna be pulled together and I'm gonna tell you how you do this. He's kind of laid the foundation for this, um, the kind of the why and the who and, the, and all of that. Now he's gonna say, this is how we do the things that we've talked about up until this point. And so finally be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. One thing I would tell you about the book of Ephesians is from chapter one all the way through chapter six, Paul is dealing with these spiritual forces of evil. He begins chapter one talking about how we've been blessed um, in spiritual ways in the heavenlies. He, he talks about how Jesus and the spirit have triumphed over the forces of darkness. Um, he talks about all of these things from the very beginning to the end. He's addressing these spiritual forces that are coming against God's people. I wanna make a statement real quick about these spiritual forces of evil that Paul is talking about because when we talk about spiritual warfare, we talk about advancing the kingdom, we talk about um, these spiritual forces of evil, there's two extremes that we have to avoid. The first extreme is this, we have to avoid this thought. There are no spiritual forces of evil. We, we've got to avoid that thought because it can sound way out there. Sometimes we see people, it gets really spooky spiritual, but we see throughout scripture that there is an enemy. We know from scripture, we know even from experience that there's more going on around us than what we see. 
And so we need to avoid this extreme. You know, um, I don't know how many of you have done this, but when I, when I played sports, there was always this danger. When you played a team that, that was not as good as you, you, there was always this danger that you would take them lightly. There were several times I, I can remember through different sports and athletics where I would go out on the field and because we kind of thought, well, they're not very good, we can beat them. Um, we went out and we ended up getting beat. Was the team better than us? No, but what did we do? We took them lightly. I remember specifically in high school, um, one of the most humiliating moments probably um, in, in athletics for me. We were playing a team from Savannah. I think it was actually Savannah High. And, and we always beat them like 33 to nothing. It was the most boring games we ever played. And so it was like 33 to nothing. We always played about three innings. It was, it was terrible. We would start our starters. And then by after the first or second inning, they were pulled out. And then um, whoever got to play, we we're pulling people from the stands, whatever, um, just to come in and play because it was just awful. And, and so I remember I was pitching. I started pitching that day. And, and I remember thinking, you know, I'm just going to go get, get the ball over to plate, you know, throw what call them baseball, get over fastball, you know, so um, I've, I've gone out there. I'm kind of just taking it lightly. Walked a couple of guys. This big kid comes up. I'm like, well, I'm just going to throw a strike, throw one. We used to play um, where Statesboro High's parking lot is now was where our baseball field was. And it faced, home plate faced. Um, it used to be big lots. I don't even know what it is now across the road over there. But, but I threw this little get over fastball just to throw a strike. And this kid hit it and it landed in the road and bounced into the big lots parking lot. It was completely, the whole dugout's laughing, the field's laughing, and I hear, a, I hear a noise and I look and my coach who's here had thrown a bucket of baseballs. Why? Because it's kind of going through the motions. And, and so many times when we, we get into this mindset, even with these spiritual forces of evil, we, we start taking it lightly. We sort of, it's out of sight, out of mind. There's nothing to this. But, but scripture teaches us very clearly that there are forces, there are spiritual forces. There is an enemy. His name is Satan. There is a demonic realm. There are spiritual forces of evil that are at work around us that really hinder us, that really try to oppress us, that really come against us. So one of the extremes is that we can't live our life as though there are no spiritual forces of evil. The second extreme that we have to avoid is that we can't attribute greater authority and prominence to the spiritual forces of evil than what they actually have. We can't look at them and be intimidated and go, oh my gosh, they're spiritual forces of evil, we're all done. We gotta realize that while it is a, they are a formidable foe, they are also a restrained foe. They are also a defeated foe that Jesus and the Holy Spirit have triumphed over them, but they still must be resisted. We're in this already not yet state. I've talked about this before with redemption, how we have been made righteous in Christ. So we're already righteous, yet we're growing into righteousness. And one day we will be made perfectly righteous um, in the kingdom uh, that is to come. And so we see this, that we live in this already not yet. It's the same thing with spiritual warfare. We live in this place where we are already, we are already victorious, but there is still an enemy that is here. So we resist the enemy. We can't live in the extreme though, that we say, my gosh, there's a demon behind every bush. There's a demon behind every corner. Everything's caused by a demon. We gotta live in this balanced place 
where we recognize there is an enemy, but he's a defeated enemy. He's a restrained enemy that we see throughout Ephesians and other places that God's given us victory over this enemy, but he's still an enemy we have to resist and we have to fight against. I want you to look, um, there's a couple of pictures I wanna put up on the screen. And the reason I wanna do this, I want you to see something. I, I got a new Bible and, and for me getting a new Bible is like getting a new, um, I don't know, toy. It's like, hee hee, I'm like giddy, like a four-year-old. And so as I got this new Bible, I started um, looking at it and thinking like, how can I use this to, to be even better understanding? So I came up with a way of, of underlining and how many of you would be a self-confessed nerd? Any other nerds in here? Nerd, nerd, right? Uh, you're about to see this, but I came up with a way of like underlining um, passages so that I could better quickly see like what's happening in them. And so I came up with this real elaborate thing that probably would just be overcomplicating something really simple for you. And so not gonna share the whole thing, but, but I want you to see this. One of the things that I did is the orange mark there, the orange underlining is, is all words or, or sentences or thoughts that are instructions, things that we should do. And I just want you to look at these verses from 10 to 20. Um, and see how much of it is orange. Instructions for things that we are supposed to do. I told you how Paul in this book has laid out the theological principles. He's laid out what should be happening. And now he's telling us how this should happen. And so if you look at this, the yellow you can barely see are those transitional phrases or words where, where I've told you, if you pay attention to these, they'll direct you that there's a change of thought. There's something happening. The orange are instructions or part of our purpose for things that we're supposed to do. And so when you look at this, look at how much of this passage, just this is just 10 through 16, is underlined with orange. I think we got the next part, 17 through um, 20 on the other picture. If you look there, all of that is orange almost. Almost the whole thing is orange. The reason I show you this is to show you that this passage we're looking at is full of instruction. It's full of instruction for what? Dealing with the enemy winning the spiritual battle, winning the spiritual warfare. And so I wanted you to see that, to understand this is a lot of instruction that Paul is giving us. If you look at this, let's begin reading again now there in verse 13. He tells us finally, as in this is the culmination of all we've been talking about. And he gets to verse 13. He tells us that our battle is against, not against flesh and blood, but against the evil spiritual forces in the heavenlies. We get to 13. He says, for this reason. And so he's saying, you need to be strengthened in the Lord because this is the battle. And he says, for this reason, because of this battle, he says, this is what you need to do. Take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist. I told you, we have an enemy that we have to resist. He is a defeated enemy, but we still resist him in this evil day. And he says, and having prepared everything to, or where did I go to? And having prepared everything to take your stand. He says, stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. 
In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. If you've been around church for any amount of time, you've heard these passages preached probably over and over and over. But but we see this, that Christ has given us what we need to be able to withstand against the enemy. He's given us these these defensive mechanisms, these defensive armament. If you were to look at a Roman soldier, which is what Paul is referring to, he would be fully ready for battle in a defensive way. He's got the the, the shield um, in his hand. He's got the breastplate of righteousness. He's got his helmet. He's got his feet fitted with combat sandals, with spikes so that they can get traction in the fight. He's got all of these things, the belt of truth that's holding everything together. He's got all of that in place. And so we see Jesus has given us these, this equipment to resist the enemy. And then listen to verse 17. He says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And in this, you've probably heard if you've been around church that he talks about the offensive weapon of the sword of the spirit, which he tells us is the word of God. As I was studying this, though, I started seeing something a little different that I had not seen um, in this. And it's really interesting as you look at this, that as he talks about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, there's two different words for word in the Bible. One of them is logos, which means the entirety. Um, like this, this full written word of God, that the word, the message in its entirety. There's another word that means rhema, which is more like the spoken word of God. It's the, the part of the word that's been spoken. And this is really interesting because remember, we're talking about um, taking ground for the kingdom. We're talking about spiritual warfare. And what we see here is that the word of God here, the word for word is rhema. It's a spoken word. It's a word that's being spoken. And so think about this. He says, this is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Most every sword I've ever seen, and you can probably tell me an example of one you have have seen. I think I've seen one or two, but most every example of a sword I've ever seen has what on the end of it? A point. There's probably some that are square. I I don't have to see pictures of those. Most have a point. Why? Because they're there to pierce. You can cut, but you can also pierce. You can stick them uh, into somebody. You pierce things with them. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is intended to be something that pierces into darkness. And the rhema word of God, this spoken word, is the good news of Christ that we speak so that it pierces the darkness. So we declare God's word. What word? The good news of Christ, the word of God, the gospel that begins in Genesis 1 and goes to the end of Revelation. We declare the word of God. We speak the word of God, the gospel, the good news of Christ into darkness so that we begin to take ground for light. Now, I'm not talking about you just walk into a dark room and you just start speaking like the word of God. What I mean is dark places. We share the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. We speak the good news. And what Paul's telling us, and we see this elsewhere in scripture, is you're not just speaking any word. This word, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, is God breathed. It has the power and authority of Jesus. 
So when we begin to share the gospel, the love of Christ, the good news of Jesus, the righteousness of God, the sinfulness of man, that Jesus paid the price for our sins so that now we can be right with God. And we begin to proclaim this truth to people, these people who are willing to listen. We begin to proclaim it. It says, listen, it has the power to pierce the darkness. It has the power to pierce hard hearts. It has the power to bring light into dark places as we proclaim this rhema, this word of God that he's given us. It pierces darkness. It pierces hearts. Pierces and begins to create light in people to give hearts of flesh. And so we see this. Here's something that's really important though. And a lot of times when you see translations of scripture, it'll start a new paragraph or a new section after 17. But if you really look at how the sentences are structured, again, I don't wanna overcomplicate something that's simple. Most of you are like, just tell me whatever it is and I'll believe you. But I want you to understand this, that when you look from verse 17 to 18, many times these verses are separated by paragraph or even another heading. But the way the sentence is structured in Greek, it's literally continuing the thought. It's not jumping from one thought of this armament and this spiritual battle to something else. And so when we read verse 18, it says this, it says, pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert. See, that even signals us that we're still talking about this battle, right? Stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints, verse 19, pray also with me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. And so Paul continues and he says, listen, you've been given this sword of the spirit, this spoken word of God that has power to pierce the darkness, that has power to pierce hard hearts, that has power to change things. He says, but don't forget this, that the way that the word goes forward, the thing that makes the way for the word to go forward is praying in the spirit at all times that we begin to lift our voices in prayer. We begin to call out to God and that, that, that the word can go forth, that we're dependent on God, not just thinking we can go and speak this, but God, would you make a way? Would you open a door? Would you reveal an opportunity? God, would you make this sink into their hearts? Would you help them hear it, God? Not with human ears, but with spiritual ears. Would you help enlighten the eyes of their heart that they could understand who you are, that they could begin to grasp and sense the love of Christ that's been offered to them through your grace? Would you open their eyes and their heart, make ways, God, and lead in power? That's what Paul's saying. You, we, we pray. So we, we recognize that there's two aspects of this. There's two aspects. One is that the word of God is spoken, the good news is shared, the good news is proclaimed. The second though is this, that we have to be praying as much as we're preaching. I would say this, that many times what's lacking, most of the time what's lacking is not, it's not the amount of word that's being preached right now as we are sitting here. There are thousands of churches just across the United States that are preaching God's word. I would say what's hindering the kingdom from going forth the most is that we're not praying God's word. 
If prayer and preaching don't go together, then I'm not saying it's not effective because God's word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It can pierce. But what I'm saying is if we're not praying, we're, we're, we're being hindered. We have an enemy that we need to pray against. So how do we pray prayers that make a way for the word of Jesus to go forth into darkness, to take back ground for the kingdom? The first thing Paul tells us here is that we pray spirit-empowered prayers. We engage our hearts. We're not just praying with our minds. We're, we're, we're dependent on the spirit to bring effect to the prayers we pray. We're allowing the spirit to even direct our prayers. This is not to complicate it. I'm gonna show you this in just a second. But we're, we're, we're praying empowered prayers. I'm not just going through some rote mechanical exercise. I'm, I'm earnestly crying out to God, God, would you change things? God, we need you. It's not a prayer like, you know, I cross my fingers, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. It's not that kind of prayer. It's not a lucky rabbit's foot in my back pocket. I'm not carrying a buckeye around in my pocket. Anybody else ever heard that? Some other country people in here? Yeah, it's not like that. It's, it's, Realizing that prayer is powerful and effective and God, we are earnestly crying out to you. We see unrighteous things happening. We see injustice. God, you are a God of justice and righteousness. Would you move on our behalf? Remember, oh God, your promises. Not like he's forgotten them. We're saying, God, choose to act right now. So we pray. Pray spirit-empowered prayers this, and this is the thing, this, this will kind of make it, I think, more practical, a little easier to see that we pray God's will. But how do we pray God's will? The most sure way to pray the will of God is to pray the word of God. Right? If I'm praying God's word, I'm praying God's will. I don't want to yank something out of context and start praying it. But if I am praying God's word in accordance with what he is teaching from scripture, then I am praying God's will. So let's think about this for a second, real practically. How could I say prayers? How could I earnestly cry out to God and be 100% sure that I am praying God's will? Let's just think about a few passages. How about Matthew 6, 10, and 11? I mentioned to you um, earlier the Lord's Prayer. Simple prayer. Jesus laid it out very simple. But if you look at Matthew 6, 10, and 11, what did Jesus say? He said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would Jesus have taught us to pray something that was not according to his will? Do you think Jesus wants his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven? Absolutely. So can we earnestly pray that? Yes. Can we stand on that? We better. What about Matthew 9, 35? Let me go back here. The only thing I don't like about this new Bible is I can't get the things quickly. It's laid out differently. You know how like you have your Bible and like you know where things are and you can just, anyway, overcomplicating simple things. Matthew chapter 9, 35. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed. Listen, 
They were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And we could sit there and say, well, you know, that was Jesus's day. I don't know, is the harvest still plentiful? Let me ask you this. Have you seen any people lately that were distressed and dejected? Seriously. Yeah. yeah. See them all the time. Flip on the news. Coronavirus. Ah! Four people in the United States, whatever it is, they've got it. We're all dying. Distressed and dejected. I'm not saying it. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's serious, right? But my point is this. They are distressed and they are dejected. People are all around us. I'm telling you, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So what should we do? Lord, would you, would you save people? Would you say, yo, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But understand this, that Jesus tells us very clearly right here, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers into the harvest field. So what can we pray and declare 100% knowing that this is God's will, that he would send people into the dark areas to proclaim this rhema word of God, this, this, this sword that pierces into darkness. How can we know that we are praying the right thing? We come to Matthew chapter nine, verse 38, and we pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. How about this one? We're talking about spiritual warfare. Listen, the, the, the authorities and principalities of this dark age cannot stand against God's word. They can stand against your word. Why? Has no authority. But they cannot stand against God's word. Why? Has all authority. If God can create by his word and he can create all that exists by his word, his word has authority. Listen to this though. We're talking about taking ground. We're talking about authority of God's word. We're talking about praying his will. Listen to this in John chapter 13. Verse 34. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How about John chapter 17? If we look at that, verse 20. Jesus praying not for his disciples then, but all believers here, all disciples. He says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you have given me so that they may be, as, be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as I have loved or you have loved me. And so what's another thing we see here that a crucial aspect of the gospel going forward is not just our proclamation, but it said our proclamation matches what people are seeing. And we can pray this knowing that Jesus wants us to love each other. Many times we pray this prayer, God, would you stir our affections for you? I wanna love you more. But how many times do we come to God's word and see that it's also important that we pray, God, would you create a greater love for my brother and sister in me? so that people can see us and see you. We know that this is God's heart. Jesus would not have prayed it if it wasn't what God wanted. Go all the way back to Genesis 12, two and three. I'm not gonna flip there, but God makes this promise. He says, listen, 
Abraham, I know you don't have any children. I know that you're, you're, you're old, but listen, you're gonna become a great nation. Out of you are gonna come this great nation. And, and from your seed, uh, the, the, all the nations will be blessed. He's talking about Jesus. When we look at this, what do we see? We begin to see and understand this promise that we can pray that God, all nations would be blessed by Jesus, that you would raise up harvesters to go into the harvest field. Paul tells us that when we pray this way, to be praying, verse 19, he tells us, stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. He tells us also that we would pray for him, that when he opens his mouth, he would be able to claim with boldness the mystery of the gospel. The point of all this is that through the believer's prayer, that, that other believers will have strength to persevere in this fight and that they would be bold in the proclamation of the gospel so that ground is taken for the kingdom. And when we begin to pray God's word and pray God's promise, and pray according to his will, which is according to his word, we begin to fight in a way that is powerful and effective. Our prayers have effect because we are praying God's will. We know that if we pray anything according to God's will, it will be done. It's not that we just pray at one time and we stop. Why? We're fighting against a real enemy. We're fighting against a real force, but it's a defeated force. How do we defeat the force? We defeat that, sound like I'm talking about Star Wars, but we defeat the, this spiritual forces of evil through God's word and through God's truth and by standing on promises and declaring them with courage and boldness. So I wanna end this today by doing that. I want us to join our hearts together and begin to pray and, and pray God's word that there be opportunity for us as a church to declare it in dark places, declare it in dark people, so let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you, God, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it pierces hearts, God. I thank you that your word is God-breathed, that it comes with your authority. I thank you that you speak and it is done. God, today we do come together. And Father, I pray right now that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. God, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we thank you for that. We pray, God, um, also that you would create a greater love for us, for each other, that your love that you shared in our hearts, that you've lavished upon us, Lord, that it would be shared amongst us, that people would see us and see you, and that it would open a door for your word to go forward. God, that we would proclaim it boldly, that you would strengthen believers, God, around this world to declare uh, your word boldly, that we would persevere in faith and not grow weary because we strengthen ourselves in you, the vast strength that you've given us, God. Your word says it's the same strength, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So God, we lean into that strength this morning. We lean into that power this morning, God, trusting you in that, Father. And I pray pray, Lord, that all nations would indeed be blessed. We know that this is your heart. Would you open doors and ways into the darkest places for your word to be declared, that the sword of the spirit, the word of God would be spoken in the darkest areas and that light would begin to shine. Father, I believe your spirit already hovers in those places, just like the earth when it was void and formless. 
spirit hovered and you spoke and it happened. Lord, would you send out harvesters into those dark areas to begin to proclaim your word, Lord, that as we speak your word, not our word, your word, Lord, that the spirit moves and light comes in darkness. Father, we thank you for it. You're worthy, God. You are worthy of all things, of all praise, of all worship, of all honor. I pray we'll pursue you with great boldness, a great longing in our hearts. Stir us up for more of you, Lord, and more love for each other. In Jesus' name, amen.